rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome, friends. This is Bob Hutchins, and welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. I'm excited today because I've got a very good friend uh, who I have gotten to know better in the last few months. You are going to love his story. Sitting across the silver table from me this morning is Mr. Wes Yoder. And before we talk to Wes, I want to tell you about his bio, his background, and um, set the table for our amazing discussion that we're going to have this morning. If you hear some noise in the background during this episode, it's because there is some construction that is going on outside, and uh, hopefully it won't disturb you too much. So let's move on to our discussion with Wes. Raised on a dairy farm in the Amish and Mennonite community of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Wes Yoder moved to Nashville in 1973 to work in the music business. Over the past 40-plus years, he's launched the careers of many well-known artists and speakers, and his projects have included representation of The Shack, William Paul Young, whom I got the privilege of interviewing a couple episodes back, Bonhoeffer, The Purpose Driven Life, and Mistaken Identity. He's been interviewed by The Today Show, NBC Nightly News, Dateline NBC, and The New York Times. Wes and his wife, Linda, live here in Franklin, Tennessee, and have two children and three grandchildren. Wes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, I think we have known about each other over the years and some of the work that I've done. I've known, obviously, your agency and your representation over the years as well. But we've gotten to talk a little bit over the past several months, and um, you, you've, you've helped me connect with some speakers, which I'm, I'm grateful but I've been uh, bugging you to tell your story because it's a fascinating story and it continues to unfold like our lives do. So um, let's just start from the beginning. I want to hear about the uh, the Mennonite and the Amish life that you started. Well, it's it's an interesting uh, curiosity uh, to a lot of people. The, the Mennonite way of life, uh, the Amish way of life, and it really is indeed that a way of life. It's a, um, a more simple uh, approach to living. Uh, it's um, a less is more uh, kind of environment in many ways. Uh, my grandparents on both sides of the family, my mom and dad's parents, were both old order Amish. Uh, my father's uh, family stayed in that church. My mom's family moved to the beachy Amish Mennonite uh, church, which is kind of a combination of things. They still dress Amish. They still had their, when I was born, they were still having their services in German. Mm. Um, and um, at the same time, um, they were allowed to have electricity in cars, but they, the cars had to be black. And so, so they were reformed Amish. <laughs> well, <laughs> kind of. you wouldn't put reformed into the Amish. Uh, you wouldn't put, add that, that uh, loaded theological term into, the, into that. So they, they were a little bit more progressive uh, than the old order Amish. Um, but even to this day, most of my second cousins in Pennsylvania are old order Amish, uh, horse and buggy people uh, driving around speaking German and uh, uh, and going down the road listening to music and uh, and and talking on their iPhones, even so though they're not supposed you, to have them. Did you grow up in that type of simple environment, or were that's more extended relatives were doing? Uh, we were. Uh, 
we in 1954, when I was four years old, we moved to a farm, which uh, all of our neighbors, all of them, were old older Amish, and uh, less than an eighth of a mile up the street, up the up the dirt road, was my my grandparents on my mom's side. So, our orientation was very much uh, in that very conservative plain. Uh, Mennonite conservative and again not politically but the conservative dress uh, Mennonites um, at first it was mostly the the Amish um, the beachy Amish uh, orientation Um, and my parents were part of a little outreach church Uh, they and about 10 other mostly relatives started this little uh, church it was an outreach of the of the beachy church but became a Mennonite church in the in this in the most poor part of Lancaster County, north of Route 30, where all the rich Mennonites lived, and south of Route 30 was kind of the economic line of demarcation. We were way south of that line, and the the point was uh, to reach the community for for Christ in uh, just by our living witness. And so, um, we heard we spoke German in our home. Uh, the kids not so much. I learned as much as I could, so I'd know what mom and dad were getting me for Christmas, if anything. Uh, and, and so we were, we were really uh, a very poor farm family, had almost no money. I don't remember the first pair of new shoes until I was in the ninth grade. Might have, I, I probably had a new pair of sneakers before that, but most of it was hand-me-downs from my two older brothers. And so while we had um, very little uh, uh, economic uh, status. Uh, we, I'm sure we were below the pro- poverty line. We had plenty of food to eat. I remember when I was six years old asking my father, uh, uh, Dad, are we poor? And he looked at me, and I, he, he absolutely did not have two red cents in his pocket. He says, do we, do we have clothes to wear? I said, yes. And he said, do we have enough food to eat? And I said, yes. And he said, do we love each other? Mm. And I said, yes. And then he looked at me and hugged me and said, well, then... I guess we're not poor. Mm, wow. That's amazing. You mentioned two older <clears throat> brothers. Was it just the three of you? There were seven of us. There oh, were wow. six boys and one, and one sister. Uh, <laughs> that poor girl. <clears throat> oh, no. She was, she was, <laughs> she we, was the we, queen. Huh? Oh, she, we took care of her. <laughs> there was uh, a funny story when we, we, we always told her growing up that she, had, she was not going to get married until every one of her brothers approved of, of it. So when it came time for when Joy, her name is Joy, and, and uh, she fell in love with this guy by the name of Dan. And when um, time came that she wanted to get engaged, she traveled literally, I think it was to Ohio, Illinois, and Tennessee, because we had spread out by that time, and, and the other brothers back in Pennsylvania, and met with every single one of us. Oh, wow. Tennessee was the last stop. Uh, <laughs> my wife and I gave her our blessing. So you were and the deciding vote. They, we were this, the final vote, mm-hmm. and they were engaged that night on our couch here That's in amazing. Tennessee. Yeah. That's amazing. So it sounds like you have fond memories of of a positive childhood growing up. It, it was a very positive childhood. Um, a lot of the the harshness of the work um, was was made worse in some ways because Dad had a heart attack when I was a rising mm. sophomore. Uh, he was not able to continue farming. He tried the following year, had another heart attack that put him in the hospital for five weeks. Uh, who does? They don't. I mean, they don't do that kind of medicine anymore. But the doctor said better better do no more farming, and so. Each one of us older guys, the, f- the four oldest boys, spent two years on the farm after high school instead of going to college um, and, and ran the farm. So the week after I graduated high school from Lancaster Mennonite High School, um, 
I was in charge of 160 acres and about 40 milk cows and all the other operations, a hair, uh, a hay and dairy, mm. um, uh, operation. Um, and I had a brother in ninth grade as my work crew. That's amazing. So did you grow up, uh, obviously were you, uh, in a, in a very, uh, Christian home? Were you guys at church all the time? Was that part of your life? Like what, what did, what did that consist of? And t- tell me what your, I guess your worldview was at that time as a child. What, what do you have memory of? Well, the, the worldview was that the best way to get to heaven was to be a Mennonite. Uh, <laughs> and our Amish relatives believed the best way to get to heaven was to be an Amish person. And so we had, we had uh, enough of the legalisms um, uh, around us to understand legalism. And, and, and yet my parents, because of their own sorrows, discovered a depth of grace that infused our life. Um, my father, from his, uh, his Amish relatives and, and siblings, and my mom, from her very conservative, by this time Mennonite uh, siblings, were constantly being um, uh, chided for, uh, for not making us boys more conservative in terms of our uh, dress. And, and <laughs> you know, it, it, it's an amazing thing, but mom and dad had this sense that there was something much deeper that was important than the externals. And, uh, and, and one of the things that they really believed in was uh, the value of the scriptures infusing our life. And we would sit around uh, all the meals together. We had, you know, basically in the farm in the summertime, there were three meals around the, fam- uh, around the family table together. And the rest of the time would be, you know, breakfast and dinner always. Um, and seven kids, uh, a crazy aunt who lived with us, often neighbor kids, sometimes foster kids. So, so around our table, there were constantly 10 to 12 or 14 people for almost every meal. And at the end of those meals, um, we would either sing a hymn together or, uh, and mom and dad just absolutely loved to sing. Dad had a, had a great tenor voice, or we would memorize scripture. And, and we would start off with, mom would do things like, we're going to learn Isaiah 55. And, the, and she would say, uh, I'm going to read the first verse. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And, she would go, and then she would repeat the first line and the second line and the third line. And at, in one sitting, we would learn one verse. And we, we learned Isaiah 55, Isaiah 53, Colossians 3, John 14, 1 to 10, uh, uh, Romans 8. Uh, all kinds of things, and we and the family could repeat Psalm twenty three, Psalm twenty four. We could repeat the entire chapters together as a family, and did. Wow, that's amazing. Um, what then did? What tell me about your high school and college life? What What was your your trajectory as you were looking at your life and where you wanted to go? What What developed out of this upbringing? I, pr- I probably had. Um, a bias about myself um, that was from mom and observation. Uh, she said she would say constantly to me, "I don't know if you're going to be a businessman or a pastor, but something in that in that ballpark." And I'm I, I'm not sure I'm I'm not sure I'm a really good uh, businessman, but I would have been a terrible pastor because I have about. <laughs> four or five things that are worth hearing uh, every year. <laughs> and and I have, to, I have to spend quite a lot of time living out what I say I believe before it's really ready mm. for anybody to hear it. And I think we do a disservice to pastors. Um, this is not your question, but I think we do a disservice to pastors to requiring them to have 52 smart things to say every year. Yeah. 
and you have nothing to say, mm-hmm. and you have nothing to say, but we have this one guy doing it. So there was a sense that um, maybe there was a calling on my life. There was a calling in my life. That was very clear, and I felt something. I, do, I, I didn't know what I was feeling. So after high school uh, and during high school, I thought that I would probably go to Penn State uh, or to Eastern Mennonite College where my siblings had gone and study something in, the, in, in business. Uh, after working the farm two years, and I, at Lancaster Mennonite High School was a very good college prep school. We had uh, a couple years of Latin, uh, German, uh, they offered Spanish, great music program, all the, all the sciences, mm. everything. And it was a very good education, and even with the farm work that we had to do because Dad could no longer continue farming, so we're already operating the farm while we're in high school with very limited study time. I was a basic BNC student, which is qualifies me to be a good entrepreneur exactly uh, because that's what we do right um uh so i ran the farm for for two years after high school mom and dad could only afford to pay us 50 dollars a month mm. and i'm pretty creative and was able to get myself in debt with that amount of spending money <laughs> I bought a car that kind of thing and worked in construction for two years after high school and never went to college and part of it was and i wanted to it was very heartbroken about about that but i didn't know what i wanted to study by that time decided I wasn't going to go to college until I knew what course I wanted to take. But the other part of it, it was um, I threw that up sort of as a screen because I did not have any awareness, kind of like J.D. Vance's book, uh, Hillbilly Elegy, <laughs> coming out of Appalachia. His, his, his classic statement is, I didn't have any awareness of what was available to me coming out of poverty. I would have qualified for any kind of grant, any kind of scholarship, and, and didn't know they were available to me. So wow. I never went to college. Wow, that's amazing. And and how did you, and so did you meet, did you go immediately to Nashville or? No. Um, how did you get here? During during the uh, the years of uh, uh, working in construction, uh, I was also involved evenings and weekends with a little group in Lancaster, Pennsylvania called Maranatha Productions. And we were doing stage plays, we were doing musical events. Uh, we did a lecture series with Paul Harvey, Dale Evans Rogers, brought them to the city, uh, to the community of Lancaster. And, and, the, and the, the final one that I was a part of was in uh, September 22nd of 1972. We had Pat Boone, his four beautiful daughters, and the Imperials Quartet, who normally were traveling with Elvis, but when they weren't traveling with Elvis, they would travel with Pat Boone. We sold out 3,800 seats at the Elizabethtown College. It's about 2.30 in the morning when everything is finished, the auditorium's clean. I'm driving back to my parents' house an hour away. I'll be in bed at 3.30. I have to leave the house at 6 o'clock to drive an hour to my construction job. And I think God put this question in my head because the only question I could ask myself on that drive home was, uh, or this statement, if there was ever anything I could do like what we did tonight, I would never go back to that construction job another minute of my life. And by the time... I got to bed at 3.30 in the morning. I had decided to set my alarm for five minutes to seven, call and quit on the phone, and I did. As a result of that, I was on Long Island two weeks later with a friend of mine from Harlem going to a Jesus music festival where I met Randy Matthews, mm-hmm. and he, uh, we struck up a conversation. He invited me to come to Nashville for one year uh, a few months later, which I did, and I was planning to be here for one year. That was 47 years ago. Wow. Did you meet your wife here? No, we met in California. She was okay. uh, one of the managers of Maranatha Village. She had come to faith through uh, the ministry of uh, Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel. And she um, was running a bookstore there. Uh, one of my clients had been invited to come and lead a Bible study for the, for the staff. And we went out on a date while I was there and went out on another date. And she didn't like me, and I thought she was fine. 
but nothing, no sparks really. She mm-hmm. sends me a Christmas card three months later, and I'm going through California again a month after that, and I, I, I called her up to thank her for the card, and hey, by the way, would you like to have dinner? Mm. And we were married eight months later. That's amazing. So that's during the uh, early 70s, uh, and all throughout the 70s. For historically, those of you who are listening, that there was a time in that period called the Jesus Movement, which was like this uh, hippies turned to faith who were kind of uh, radicals. And this was pre-evangelical like uh, moral majority right that started in the 80s, uh, late 70s. So Am I correct? That's where you were kind of living and breathing and and doing your thing at that time. That's right. I, I was the first person in Nashville to do anything with the G, with Jesus music. Everything else was on the West Coast, so there was one artist here and one person on the business side, and that was me. The the, the business side of it, um, but the Jesus movement itself was an amazing thing because. Um, if you go back and listen to some of the music, some of it's awful, some of it's just raw, some of it is is brilliant. Um, out of it came this movement of the Holy Spirit that was carried on the wings of three words, Jesus loves you. Hmm. And that, that was the hue and cry of the Jesus movement. We would tell anybody that we met, do you know that Jesus loves you? Hmm. And, and we could be talking to a waiter in a restaurant and tears would start coming down his face we, we or meet somebody on the street it was it was an amazing time and yet it was a radical thing because um with it came the music the cultural changes that were that were in the winds already in the culture the the um you know elvis presley basically pushed against the morals and the and the mores of society with his rock and roll music and it and it created an energy um, so did the Beatles, all kinds of things that followed. But it, w- with Jesus music, there, there were only a few pastors uh, in the United States uh, that, that even cared about what we were doing. Chuck Smith in California, Don Finto in Nashville, Paul McGuire in New York, and almost everything in, be- in between was a wasteland. And so we were creating a new space for people to experience Jesus in a fresh new way. Um, and it was it was driven by a love it was you know jesus is and and the bible and god is love and it was driven by that there was no other agendas there was no politics there was no like uh and there was no other construct that was pushing forward it was just like hey love is the love is the answer the world's saying that let's take it a step further and and saying this is was the message of Jesus right. and this is what the scripture talks about am i correct in that absolutely no political agenda no no religious structure agenda we were rejected by the religious structure um, there there was no christian music uh, structure that that eventually created a ccm sound and squeezed the life out of uh, jesus music and the and the wide vast range i mean we had everything from jazz to rock to folk to classical to black gospel all this stuff was being created uh, by christian musicians and it was it was really you know uh, sing to the lord a new song that it was mm. really that kind of thing um, and and it wasn't uh, what later became uh, to me a very boring CCM music experience. Yeah, yeah. And so you got into that. Is that when you started your agency and your booking? Was that the the, the genesis of it? We started the agency um, in 1973. Okay. Uh, and and by 1976, I was working with a speaker. By 1978, I had done my first book deal. I wasn't trying to get in the literary business. Um, advised different authors for about 20 years before I actually made a penny off of any anything of the literary work. I go, I think I know enough about 
being a literary agent to actually say that I am and actually start taking clients. And so um, the very first client that I had as a literary agent was, were the McCoy Septuplets and their family hmm. in 1997. Yeah, I remember that. And by that time, uh, what we were doing with the, with the Speakers Bureau kind of outweighed the, um, uh, what, our interest in music. The last artist that we launched was Rebecca St. James. Mm. Uh, the only artist that we continue to work with and have done so on a handshake basis since 1987 is Buddy Green. Got it. Um, Mary, did you know? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Brilliant harmonica work. That's awesome. So, so you kind of stepped into this, um, built, a, built an agency that started with music and now has gone almost exclusively to speakers and authors. Um, and you were... You started in the early Jesus movement, and then you represented and were were a part of what happened continually in the evangelical church for many, many years. Talk to me about that transition. Like, what have you've seen? Some amazing things. You've seen some horrendous things. You've seen some unfortunate things. You know, we could probably talk for hours about about that experience. But what? evolved and changed from the time you got in in the late 60s early 70s through the 80s and 90s what was that what was the evolution like looking back now one of the things that happened uh, was that um jerry falwell jerry falwell came along and he was apparently i never met him apparently a really wonderful grandfather hmm. uh a decent preacher and and probably not as savvy on the political front as you would have hoped because what well, the allurement that came through the moral, moral majority was it's our turn for our seat at the table. It's our turn to walk the halls of power with Reagan. And here we start to observe a cultural trend, a societal trend in the evangelical community where the, there is this blending of political power with the power of the religious structure. Mm. And it is deadly. It has always been deadly. When you have empire and, and kingdom of God, um, when you have an attempt by people to merge those two things, it is it always ends badly. History absolutely shows that it does. And so uh, I have grave concerns about where we are uh, with the evangelical community, uh, uh, pledging their allegiance to political leaders um, instead of reserving for themselves a prophetic voice, instead of preserving for themselves a space of, of the proclamation of the love of God uh, mm. to the world, um, and I think I think we are in for some very sorrowful times mm. based on what I've been observing. Yeah, it it feels very obvious right now, very black and white. During the during the eighties and all of the the kind of merging of all this stuff, were you um, were you sensing it then, or were you just on board thinking this is great? What I mean, I know you now, and now in two thousand twenty twenty. Um, but what was your opinion back then? My opinion then uh, was, um, I, I think I was drinking some of the Kool Aid. I don't think I ever drank all of it. Um, and part of it is because of the Anabaptist background. Uh, part of it is um, uh, spending time with with the Reformed Church, the Presbyterian Church. Um, now, just for those listeners, the Anabaptist is not the same as what you consider your normal Baptist or conservative or Southern Baptist. Correct. But Anabaptists, they they are um, very anti-politics, anti-war, uh, all of that, right? Yeah, and, and even to the point of, um, uh, you know, 
to the point where my father never voted, which is going to sound like anathema to sure. many of you who listen to this. You go, what in the world? How stupid is this? And I would talk to him about this, and it became sort of a tease, but also something that I respect deeply. And um, be- because uh, what we are being told now is that when you vote in the in the voting booth, you kind of hold your nose and vote for the lesser of two evils. And there's another place for you if you want it. Uh, and that is, I don't. Ha- I'm not going to be forced into a place of voting for the lesser of two evils. I'm going to vote what I think God is leading me to vote. And sometimes that means voting, and sometimes it means w- w- uh, abstaining from voting. And this this sounds like this sounds like heresy, political heresy. It sounds like religious her- heresy to some. But I would ask my father, why are you not voting? He says, because I am an ambassador mm. from another country. Mm. And ambassadors do not have voting privilege in 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 the countries where they are assigned. Interesting. So that was your foundation. So that's what you grew up. That's what you witnessed. As you begin to participate and be on the front lines and represent many speakers, as you're going through this process through the years, um, were. During those times, were you reminded of those conversations with your father? Were you kind of was there some cognitive dissonance? What what was going on? Uh, I was reminded of those conversations a lot, <laughs> uh, and and we would continue to have them uh, mm. well into the you know you know after the after the year two thousand. He died in two thousand ten, so we would continue, and they were they were they were uh, more and more friendly as time went by, and they mm. were never adversarial. But I would I would just have these conversations dad i want to understand more about the way you think i want to understand how how it connects to the kingdom of god because this is this is where our citizenship is in the kingdom of god this is this is what really matters the kingdom of heaven uh, and and this kingdom is within us mm-hmm. and we're looking for an external kingdom but it's this it's a kingdom that that's within us and so uh, for a long time i was i was very much um, supportive of you know the more conservative political side of things there are parts of that that i still think are fabulous uh there are parts of the liberal agenda where they're saying what is true and as 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 one now who reserves the right to discern mm-hmm. and the responsibility to discern you know solomon said get wisdom but above all get discernment and and i think i think that's a lot of that has gone missing in our in our life together uh in the church and so this this fact of discerning the culture, discerning uh, where we are in relation to it, and and I believe that that the place that Christ Himself calls us to is is first of all rooted in truth, and so if something comes from the right that is true, we embrace it. If something comes from the left that is true, we embrace that. But we create a beloved community that Dr. Mm. King talked about. We create a beloved community that Jesus talked about. And, and we are not, we, we, we reserve this place. We are not partisan. Mm. We are something different. Yes. And we are the body of Christ. And it is a beautiful thing. And we must be very careful not to pervert it and not to, not to diminish the beauty and the value of that in the world we live in today. Mm. There is a great opportunity for us to distinguish ourselves not as partisans, but as the body of Christ. Mm. What does that look like, Wes? I struggle um, to really understand and put a picture to that because um, we've—I've been brought up, and you're—you're you're just a few years ahead of me, not very by very much. But I was brought up in that '80s, '90s culture too, where you know 
this is the church and like you said this is my tribe so that's you know that's my people too it's where i was brought up but now you know through my own journey and evolution and growth you know i don't see myself in that uh, so much of so much of is seems very foreign to me um but yet you know it's easy to swing to the other side and to me, it feels like whether you, if you're a progressive Christian, you can become very fundamentalist. Whether you're conservative Christian, you become very fundamentalist. And it's almost like you got to pick a side. And to say, I don't want to pick a side, I don't want to be a part of any um, construct. Um, I just want to know maybe what the scripture says about Jesus, what he was really saying, because everybody has a different opinion. Um, so I struggle to know what that looks like. Can you help me with that? What do you, what do you think it is? Baxter Kruger, who is a theologian, um, said to me recently, he said, uh, after all of this gobbledygook, religious gobbledygook, all the structure, all the plans, all the political stuff, all the, all the schemes that we have about how to live the Christian life successfully, the question is, will someone please just show me how to follow Jesus? And it comes down to that for me, because um, a few years ago there was a statistic that said, uh, and I don't know who put this together, and I'm not sure it's accurate, but that perhaps 10% of people who call themselves Christians are really actually actively pursuing putting the, practice, putting the teachings of Jesus into practice into their own life. And I go, oh my gosh, that's such a, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. uh, those dumb people, those 90% people. Right. And then I had to start asking myself the question, mm -hmm. am I one of those 90% or one of those 10%? 10 am I one of the people who, who gets healed and comes back and says, thank you, like the lepers? Or am I, am I off somewhere else in my own agenda? And I started reading um, the teachings of Jesus again. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson was criticized for, for only reading the red letter portions of the Gospels. Right. So I thought about this, and of course that's ridiculous because you need the context, you need all this stuff. But one day I said, I'm going to read the Gospel of John, red letter only, because I know all the stories about the Pharisees. I've read John so many times. I know about the Sadducees. I know all the things I know about the disciples, everything. I want to see what Jesus was saying. So I read the entire book of John, red letter only, and just would stop and meditate on just the teachings of Jesus. Then I went back and read the whole thing in context again, and then I went back and read the whole thing in German. Mm. Only, so, well, partly because I, I want to learn my German better, but also because I wanted to see a different perspective, a different way that, that things were being said. I'm reading now the Gospel of Mark. Mm. Um, I have such a hard time when I get to the end of each one of the Gospels and have to read about the crucifixion. Mm. It's just painful. It's like, sure. and then it, then I usually stop sometimes a week, and I think I stopped reading Mark for three weeks because I I wasn't quite ready to hear yeah. that again. And then I said, okay, the time has come, and I and I was reading about the crucifixion, and it's so beautiful. It's so devastating. It's so real. It's so Jesus, uh, absolutely incredible. So. Um, instead of speed reading the Bible now, I really want to encourage anyone who's listening, read until one verse stops you, and then don't move off of that until you ask the Holy Spirit to show you why you were stopped, mm. why it caught your attention, and, and what 
um, this is meant to mean to you today from the Holy Spirit, because this is this is not words on a page. This is the active, living presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit using the Word of God to to bring life to us. Uh, these are the words of life and of light, and it, they really matter. But but Jesus is the living Word. That's good. For those of us who struggle, and there's many of us that do, um, who were brought up being taught that you know the Word of God is the Bible, and now you know when you take a step back and you're open and you research and you study and you see that um, you know the the scriptures were handed down by handed down by 150, 200 years after everyone died, um, and you know Jesus never wrote anything down and he never told anyone to wrote any, write anything down. How much trust do we have in the written word? And, and I, where I'm going with this is not to debate the validity of, of Scripture or the Bible. Where I'm going with it is this idolatry that we put in a book um, that I think maybe I would love to hear your opinion of the Word of God being this book that we put so saying it's perfect, it's right from the breath of God. And yet, historically and scientifically, if we were to take the same history of that book and apply it to anything else in our world, we would say, well, it's not that's not divine. So talk to me about that. There are there are this is an area for great care and great discernment and for great respect for the translators who have tried yes. to do this faithfully. Um, we also know that from some of the textual criticism uh, that we can do research on is that some of the some of the meanings have changed over the years. And this is yes. why um, in and I read the ESV because it came out of the Revised Standard Version, which was such a beautiful translation, and was uh, was was then retranslated or rechecked, and and things changed. And there are a lot of footnotes about it. the original manuscript didn't have this word. The little the original text don't have this or added this. And so you go, okay, so there's something that's in flux about this that is important for us to understand, important for us to be open-minded about it, and at the same time not to lose the respect of the dignity of this text um, that really has been given given to us by God for our, our well-being and, our, and, and, and all the things the scriptures teach. But it's an interesting thing, an interesting question. In, in the King James Bible, the word tree appears 967 times. The King James and the ESV are touted by uh, religious conservatives as being two of the best translations that have ever been translated. So you have 967 occasions for the word tree in the King James, 234 times less in the ESV. Mm. So that, that one fact alone, do your own research, but that one fact alone shows you that there is something alive and living here. Uh, the NIV is a thought translation where it's the thought that counts. Well, this is what they meant. And so the minute you start uh, having a literal translation like the King James and the ESV, you see the problem with the word tree. When you have a thought translation like the NIV, you, you say, well, uh, the translators believe that the, the thought intention was to say it this way. And then you go back uh, and you have... Um, you have scholars in, in you know, in you know, a, a Jewish scholar recently sure. said, and I, I, I'm sorry, I don't have the the name of this person, but uh, love your neighbor 
as yourself. He said the better translation of this is love your neighbor as your equal. Mm. Mm. So, so because right now, when you say love your neighbor as yourself, you go, oh, what? that means I have to have self-love. Well, it's a statement that, that basically you could say I already do have self-love yeah, because the scriptures teach us that no man hath yet hated himself, right? But it changes a little bit and then a lot if you love your neighbor as your equal. And we need more of that teaching into that translation for that text. Of well, it also, it also, uh, not to go down a rabbit trail, but you know, your theology and doctrine influences how you interpret it. So, you know, I was brought up saying, well, you don't love yourself, you die to yourself. You die to yourself, you die to yourself, and nothing's good in you. So when you say love your neighbor as yourself, like you love yourself, then it becomes very confusing. Right. Then you're, as a right. kid, you're like, well, I thought we weren't supposed to love ourselves, only right. Jesus. Right. And then you get all, all kinds of rabbit trails that yeah. you can go down in interpretation. So that's good. That, that's, a great, that's a great point. Um, talk to me, Wes, about your own journey. Um, I know that you know, this bio that I read, I read earlier um, was based on uh, your, your, your book, which you've written, um, and I know that that book was about Bond of Brothers connecting with other men beyond work, whether in sports. <laughs> I'm not a person of small talk, and I know you aren't either. Um, your journey through all this stuff, and, and so fascinating just to know who you've known and talked to and represented and been through and then processed it in your own brain. Um, talk to me a little bit about how that book came about, and then I want to talk about your own spiritual growth and evolution through that. Uh, to answer that, um, I want to start with one statement, and then I want to read just a few okay. lines. Um, uh, and I love, I love the name of your show, Rumors of Grace, because when, when you discover that you are the object of God's grace, and it's not unmerited favor, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, um, I wrote this this for um, my friends. Men often miss how gentle the grace of God is. They assume God has an edge, a business side that can't quite be trusted just like their own. But when they discover how good he is, how easy it is to be with him, they turn from the death of their own pursuits to the living presence of the one who makes us alive. Mm. And it's the discovery of grace in my parents' life that they passed on to me. It's then understanding um, that that God loves his children more than we think he does. Mm. Uh, it, it, it impacts everything in our life. And, um, you know, the question becomes, is, are, 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 is everybody God's child or only people who acknowledge him as Savior? Or say and the magic prayer. Or is there a magic <laughs> prayer? And, and so there's, there, are this, there are scriptures on both sides of this. And I believe that that he has he has loving arms around the entire world. Mm. Um, you know that he does. Careful, you're going to become a heretic. I, be careful. <laughs> yeah, you got to you got to handle this very sure. carefully because uh, I I have come to see that um, that that God loves my children more than I ever could. Mm. He loves me more than I ever thought. And and grace is not unmerited favor. It's it's. It's what happens in a in a father son relationship, a mother daughter relationship, a, a parent child relationship, and 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 the question is, you know, all of this talk in modern evangelical. Listen, I'm so unworthy. I'm so depraved. I'm I, I I just don't deserve this. I don't. 
this is not the way that God mm-hmm. our Father is talking about us. This is, the, this is language that we are scribing to him as though belittling ourselves makes him greater. Yeah, it's shame and, and I got news for you. Yeah. I have news for you. Belittling yourself does not make God greater. Mm-hmm. Acknowledging, acknowledging what is true and what is real about the greatness of God and my need for him. Now that's something we can talk about. Right. But, but I, I would never... Um, I would, I would never allow my children to say, Dad, I'm so unworthy of your love. Mm. I would cry. Mm. What, what tears are we causing God our Father to cry over his children who think this is the attitude that he has toward us? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, let's, let's go down that road. Uh, if, if everyone is God's children, which I happen to agree with you, but I am going to play the other side, um, if everyone is God's child, um, what then do we do with those scriptures and those teachings and those understanding that, that, that seem to imply there are those who are not? We hold them with great respect and dignity, mm. and we trust God with the mystery of what we cannot understand. Mm. And we trust that there is no one and this is more from my Anabaptist background, the Reformed faith is going to say something very different, but that that no one is sent anywhere without it being their choice to go there mm. when they know what the real choice is. Mm. And maybe that's enough to say because because we bump up, we have such a rational mindset in the, in the, in the West that says if we don't understand it, it can't be true. Mm. And there is there is a place where the greatest minds on earth, and mine and yours included, in wherever we are on that spectrum, I don't, it doesn't matter if we're <laughs> great or small, we wind up bumping against mystery. Mm. And the question about for the American church is, are we willing to embrace the mystery of what we don't understand and trusting that God is bigger than any of this and that he's got it and that he's going to turn, he has given into our hands the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And we're going to die and he's going to give it to our messed up children. And he's not worried. He can still handle that, and he can still he can still reconcile all things to himself, yes. which is a promise of Scripture that all 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 of Christendom hangs on to. This we have a little bit different interpretations, but I believe that the reconciliation of all things to God means more than reconciling squirrels and fence posts and the planet Mars to himself. It's not just about fixing what went wrong. In the in the in the DNA of the earth, when we sin, it's about the reconciliation of all things, and I believe that includes the human all family. human beings. I agree with you one hundred percent. How he's going to do that? Yeah, I just I I, I am in awe sure. that there is a God big enough who can do this. I yeah. believe I believe that God does not intentionally create an adversary to whom He will give most of His creation in the end. I somehow. Sure. I don't know how to talk about this. I don't. I can't take it much further than what we've said. Sure. I just am willing to trust that God is bigger than I think He is. Yeah, I think when you get rid of the retributive God and you get rid of all of that, um, you're left with something that looks very, very, very different, and it causes you to live your life and to and read and to understand, and this inclusiveness that it causes. Um, looks like something very different, and yet you wake up one day and you say, 
maybe this is what Jesus was talking about. <laughs> well, the, 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 the hard part of this is people then start saying, well, then you don't believe in Jesus or what he did. No, I want to be really straightforward about this. I believe that all salvation mm. is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All salvation. And, how, and this makes the problem even more difficult for people that have never heard, for people that are serving other gods, for people. Mm-hmm. How does this reconciliation sure. happen? So, so don't ask me. Ask Father, Son, and Holy Spirit how they intend to reconcile the entire world to God the Father through Jesus. It is through Jesus and through Christ alone. This is, this is Orthodox Christianity. How he does that and, and through, through the work of the cross, through, through all of this, how he, how he gets to everybody out there in the wilderness that has never heard, how he does all of that. Right. Welcome to Mystery, dear friends. What are your thoughts? And I don't want to get too deep into it, but I would love to hear um, Richard Rohr's book, Universal Christ, um, and him talking about this. You know, he makes a statement that says, Jesus, you know, God wasn't sitting on his hands for 13.5 billion years. And then 2,000 years ago, he has devises a plan. And then from then on, he just, everything for the last 2,000 years, this, this is where God is active in the world. And that's a very deep statement because what he's saying is that before we had the physical Christ, the Christ, which is the, the, the presence and the redemptive um, love of the divine, was always at work manifesting himself through many different places and things and times. And, and then we needed a physical human to see so that we could reference because it's too grand to, to look at the cosmos. And yet even, you know, in the book of Romans, you know, you see, he starts off by saying, um, all creation testifies to this reality. That's right. And so I just would love to see where you, where you fall on that and how you kind of think through that because you do begin to say, okay, well, if if God is reconciling all human beings to Himself, and they will be, I, I agree with you on that. Um, then you have to go down the roads of how is, and like you said, maybe it's not for us to understand. How is He communicating that to the Muslim? How is He communicating that to, you know, the the Hindu that lived five hundred years ago? How is He communicating that to those people of other faiths before Christ was even born? Right. Talk to me about what, what, and I know this is speculation, but I think it's an important conversation because we get so myopic and we become the center of the universe and we think that we have the ultimate truth, you know, and we've only, you know, however long we've been alive, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, however. In 2007, I had the privilege of going to the Kurdsman church in Erbil, Iraq. The war was still going on, basically. And they were having, in Iraq, the, the very first national con- uh, Christian conference of churches, and it was at the Kurdsman church. Um, that night was phenomenal, I'll never forget it. Uh, after the services, we were invited into an upstairs room um, with, with our little group of people who had come from the United States to the conference. Uh, the pastor of the church and some of the elders. And one of the elders uh, was asked to give this story of how he came to faith. He had been a rocket launcher for Al-Qaeda uh, on, on kind of the western, I'm sorry, on the eastern side of, uh, of, of Iraq over toward Iran. And um, he starts having doubts about, the, the, about Islam. And it's interesting how God 
can infuse our doubt with the right kind of questions. We always think, oh, doubt, no, this is a bad thing. Not, not, not really. The story I'm mm. telling you is, shows you that it's a good thing sometimes. And, and uh, he had a lot of doubts about the veracity of Islam and what, what was in the Quran. And one night he had this incredible dream. And he is, he is out in this wilderness where he is, you know, firing rockets whenever he's told to do it. Um, and in this, in this dream, he sees a parade, a, a, a procession of all the kings of the earth in all their pomp and splendor. <clears throat> and they all go past him. And he's thinking to himself, I wonder what that was. And he looks far back in the back. There's one lone figure coming riding on a donkey. He's, he has never had an encounter with, with, with Jesus in his life. This figure keeps riding along, and when, when the figure uh, gets closer, he notices there's a veil over the figure's face. doesn't see who it is. And, and this donkey rider comes right next to him and then lifts the veil off his face, and in his dream he says, Isa, Isa, Isa. This is Jesus revealing himself. This is how he comes to faith. Mm-hmm. And, and he is married to the daughter of the imam of uh, of Erbil, who has a a, a, a fatwa, a death watch for them, and yet he is he has come to faith miraculously. So we're wondering about miracles. We're wondering about this. I have great. I mean, this is one example. There's so many hundreds and thousands of stories like this of of God revealing Himself to someone when there's no actual human messenger. I, I believe that that um, to answer this is another part of of what you alluded to, but in the dignity of our humanity because all mankind is made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. I think we discount the value of that. Um, John says that all things were created in and through Christ Jesus. This is another way that all creation is connected to God. And then you have in Ephesians three fourteen and 15, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I've never heard a sermon mm. about that part of it. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Mm. It means something. Mm. What it means exactly, you tell me. <laughs> but it's significant. Yeah. And I, I believe that the, the modern humanist movement got a lot of its energy from the church, sure. from the negative part of the church, not not celebrating the dignity of who we are as human beings made yes. in the image of God. Yes. And so they came up with this construct and said, we don't really need God, and of course we do. Yeah, that's, um, that's interesting. I always found it fascinating, and another overlooked thing that um, Jesus was referred to the Son of Man, and he refers himself as the son of man more than any other, which means the human one. Right. And so you would think that if he, quote, knew who he was or, quote, was trying to make a statement, he would refer himself something different, but he kept saying, no, I'm the human one. And so my interpretation of that is if we want to know what it means to be human, then we study Jesus. And Jesus, vice versa, Jesus was saying, he wasn't trying to tell you how to be more godlike he was trying to show you that in to be more human is to be more godlike and so when i come in contact with another human i then have to say this is what god is like and that's and that's why jesus would say when you done it unto this person and this person and this person the people that don't look like church members the guy in prison the the, the homeless person the hungry person then you done it unto me 
because they are just as much in the image of God as you are. What's wrong with us is not our humanity. Mm. What is wrong with us is the loss of our humanity. Oh, so C.S. Lewis said, when we get to heaven, what are we going to be, angels or you know, you know, artificial intelligence or robots? No, we're going to be fully human. And so our humanity itself derives from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It has its origin there. And so um, you know, Jesus um, takes on the form of, of our lowest state, this humanity. He takes on this humanity, and he takes on our darkness. But he mm. comes in order to show us once again what it was that we, what, that we messed up and what we lost in the loss of our humanity through sin. And, and he is restoring that. When he ascends into heaven, he ascends as a fully resurrected human being, fully the son of God, fully the son of man, and ascends into heaven, takes with us, into he- with himself into heaven, our redeemed humanity. Mm. Let's put this into practical terms with the little time that we have left. You and I were talking over coffee earlier about one of your, your authors that, that you represent, and having an, a, a much more human view and inclusive of all humanity uh, of life and how you've come to your point in your, your, your life, um, you know, the issues today, uh, I think we're dealing with them. And, and I think what's happened in our environment, specifically in America, is it's, it's exposed some things. It's exposed some faulty cracks. It's exposed some outmoded and outdated views of, of religion. Um, and, and there's, there's an, uh, things that we have to come face to face with and we either double down and we go hard against them and become, um, really mean and ugly, or we try to see, uh, really what's being exposed. And I know that you've been traveling around the country. Uh, you've been going to Ivy league colleges and schools and, and, and some of your authors are, are addressing some of those. Can you talk a little bit about it and what you're seeing and how, you know, this whole thing we've been talking about is seeing all humans um, made in the image of God and that God will is redeeming and, and renewing all things. The um, interesting thing about uh, white privilege, I'm mm. an old white guy. Uh, you're an aging white guy. <laughs> I'm an aging white, an guy. Aging white guy. Is is what we don't see and what we haven't seen. And um one of the one of the amazing questions that I believe is from the Holy Spirit in my life in the last two years is how do I become aware of things of which I am utterly unaware and yet which are essential? You can't Google that. You don't I mean you you can't Google that. So Holy Spirit, will you please reveal to me what I need to see in my world? Will you bring into my life, into my world, people with other perspectives that I can have these conversations with so I can understand what they're going through. And so uh, one of the things that's happening um, in these events at Ivy League schools, at universities across the country, where we're going with one of our clients, Centoya Brown Long, is that the urban community is showing up in mass. And basically, I have watched Centoya in this space where she's come out of a sex, sex trafficking background. She's come out of 15 years in prison. She's come out of um, a juvenile justice uh, situation because of clemency the governor Haslam here in Tennessee granted to her. And she stands after she speaks in these long, with long lines of people waiting to have a moment with her. And it's sort of, it's like God has made her a priest to these people to hear mm. a confession. Mm. I, I also have been trafficked. I too 
was victimized. I too have done this misdeed. I too have committed this sin. And this is happening at Dartmouth and University of Pennsylvania and the University of Chicago and you know Notre Dame, all kinds of places where we've been able to go. And in this, you see, um, you see a lot of the uh, uh, the culture, cultural things from pe- from people of color. And I realize how uninformed I have been mm-hmm. about the despair. And then you have recent statistics that basically say somewhere between sixty to eighty percent of women in our country have been abused sexually or have have been victimized in some way uh, by sexual predators. The statistics are astounding. And yet, in our speakers bureau, uh, I did a survey, a, a, a conversation with our with our team about what what are the most difficult uh, subjects uh, uh, that we uh, that we what are the most difficult topics to get uh, ske- speakers scheduled for in the white evangelical churches, and it is, it is most of the time we don't want to hear anything about racism. Mm. It's not our problem. The system is not unjust. We're, it's the one we created. It, you know, we have we have Christian forefathers who have made a Christian nation out of this, and we don't see the injustice. Mm. Racism is one. Sex trafficking is another one, because there might be children in the audience, yeah, and we're not right. creating these forums uh, within our community. And yet, in the urban community, you, you know, you might not like rap music. I don't care for most of it. Uh, you might not like the the hip hop movement. But out of this, there is a resistance saying we won't take it anymore. Look at the anger that is being expressed. And don't think of it just as, oh, they're just stupid people in rebellion. Look at the lyrics and look at the sorrow that is behind it. And you will start ask the Lord to give you compassion and understanding. And I would encourage you to see the movie Just Mercy, to read the book Just Mercy. And go like we did a few weeks ago to the Equal Justice um, Initiative Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, Mm -hmm. and stand there. And if you can stand there without weeping, Mm -hmm. stay about four or five more hours, start having some conversations. Mm -hmm. This sorrow, this brokenness, this torn place that needs so much healing that will come through Jesus and through the reconciliation of all people unto Christ himself. Uh, we we are um, we are ambassadors for Christ, and I have given you this ministry of reconciliation. Uh, God is reconciling the world to Himself through us. Not this counting a, men's sins. Not counting <laughs> men's sins against them. We don't hear much of a sermon about that these days. That that'll preach too. But we are we are these ministers of reconciliation. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So as you go from, um, you know, you go around and. You talk about these things, and I know that that sometimes you can 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 um, maybe receive opposition on some of these things. I don't know, but do you have hope for the future uh, for the church for those uh, people who come from a, a faith tradition, and even for those who don't? What tell me what the outlook is? You're at the you know at the point in your life now where you can look back on many years of, of life. Are you hopeful for the future? The great change agent in the world is not wealth, it's not capitalism, it's not Western democracy, it is sorrow. Mm. And the sorrows of my life have transformed me. Mm. Uh, I have great hope because Jesus is the man of sorrows who's acquainted with our grief. And he will see to it that sorrow performs 
its function in our life. The purpose of sorrow is to create room for more joy. The purpose of sorrow is to open my eyes to discern the world that I live in so that I can see the least of these and care for them as a family member would care for it for a family member. This is, this is what God is doing, and God will perform his work, and I have great hope. I ha- I am a, I am, I'm not an optimist, but I, neither am I a pessimist. I hope that I'm a realist in terms of seeing what God is doing in the world, how he wants to invite us to participate in his work. Paul Young says God seldom does something by himself that he can invite one of his children to participate with him. Mm. And so this is this is what I'm observing. Um, ask of Jesus the hardest question that you ever can think of. Ask him what about your life uh, would be better uh, if he really in, were in charge of it. What What are the things that Jesus wants to show us? What do Father, Son, and Holy Spirit want to do in us and through us? And I have great hope because once you realize how good Father, Son, and Holy Spirit really are, you can't go back to an old way of thinking, and you can't go back to being a pessimist, and you can't really actually going going, going forward only be a, an uninformed optimist. You look at the whole thing, and you put your arms around the mess that we are, realizing that God has even bigger arms I can reach only partway around the tree. He's got his arms around the entire world. That's beautiful. I want to thank you for for your time. Um, how can people find out more about you, your writings, your your business, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> What's your company website? You know, the company website is ambassadorspeakers.com. Okay. Uh, you can find my book on Amazon at least now. I don't know that any bookstore still has it, but it's called Bond of Brothers. Uh, I wrote it so that uh, I could express uh, honestly what I thought um, was at least an observation about the needs of men. Uh, the need uh, for those of us who have been silent for a very long time to discover the dialect of our own hearts so that we can speak uh, to the things that we care about most uh, and develop a language um, that helps the, the beloved community, the community of life, uh, uh, that, that builds a community of life around each person so that mm. we don't have the isolation, we don't have the loneliness, but we have the kind of beautiful solitude that prepares us to live inside community. Mm, That's beautiful. Well, I want to thank you for your life. Thank you for your honesty. Um, And I thank you for your wisdom. Um, And I know that, that, that you don't, that you don't take like to take compliments, but I just want to thank you for being um, a voice of wisdom in my life Um, and really living what it could be and can be and is. I think so many of us need to see people like you that have, that have not thrown in the towel, that have not given up on the church, but uh, has seen something different, something more beautiful, and is willing to walk in that. So thank you for that. All I want to say right now is, dear church, do not be afraid. Jesus is with us. Thank you. Talk to you soon. 